Please stand with me as I read the word of God. Acts 28, 14 through 16, and 23, as well as Romans 16, 25 through 27. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from prophets. This is Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're looking at um, the end of the book of Acts when Ryan is preaching through. And then we're looking this morning at uh, the end of Romans chapter 16. Acts begins in Jerusalem, the capital of the Old Testament Israel. It ends in Rome, the capital of the most powerful empire of the day. And historians, as they've looked back at the Roman Empire, have labeled a period from 500 B.C. to about 187 A.D. as the Pax Romana. The Romans spoke in Latin. Pax is the word for peace. Romana is Roman, the Roman peace. The Roman army was probably the most highly trained, most efficient, uh, probably the best equipped army that had ever set foot on the earth in that day. And they began to expand in the fifth century. And they would go from country to country, kingdom to kingdom, and conquer and conquer and conquer. <clears throat> they were brutal in warfare. They would establish Roman rule. They would bring in after the conquest rules, standards, politicians. And in the place of, of the conquest and the blood, they gave peace. They gave order. They gave structure. They brought an amazing amount of skill to life. They estimate that their empire spread across 3.5 million square miles. Population, they estimate, was at 60 million people. They achieved incredible military feats, political feats, architectural feats. If you ever go to Europe, just look. You'll see an aqueduct somewhere built by the Romans. You'll see uh, somewhere close to where one of our visitors lives, uh, Hadrian's Wall. They brought these incredible structures that were for the, the safety, the security, the protection of the people, <coughs> and for the enforcement, of course, of Roman rule. Perhaps from my perspective, the most notable thing the Romans did was they built VI, V-I-A-E, Latin plural of the word via. You know about via, the way. <coughs> they built ways, 400-kilometer straight highways. They were the, the first interstates that the world had ever seen. <coughs> and those highways made it easy for travel, 
for commerce, for their, their armies to march across and squell rebellions, reestablish peace. But the empire and the, the VI were beautifully God's appointed instruments for his gospel to spread and expand into all of the Roman world. The missionaries would go down those interstates, and they could travel with a fair degree of safety, and they could reach major cities, major populations. They could reach the European tribes, the Slavs, the Francos, the Picts, the Celts. And when they came there, they discovered peoples that were living in fear and superstition. They were captured by what they felt were the, the angry outbursts of their gods. Here's a, a lightning bolt. Three people are killed. Woo, the god of lightning must be angry. Here's the river that overflows, and the village is swamped, and oh, the god of the river must be angry. Here's a disease that flows through our city. And oh, the God of life must be angry. And the missionaries came with a new message. They said, no, God is not a God like man who throws temper tantrums. He's not a God that gets mad at you and throws a lightning bolt to strike you dead. The real God, the true God, is very unlike man. He is not man. He is holy. He is sinless. He demands perfect obedience to him. But this God of such high demands of holiness is a God of amazing mercy, a God of amazing love. In fact, this God has made a via, a way of forgiveness and of friendship with him. And amazingly, he's done it through the perfect life of his son, who's left heaven, come to earth, and lived a perfect, obedient life like this God demands of you and me. But even more than that, this perfect son has received the justice of this holy God on himself, and he's chosen to die judicially, sacrificially, so that you and me should no longer fear the thunderbolt of some non-God or the plague of some non-God, but rather that you and me should know forgiveness so that you and me would know friendship, so that you and me would be rescued and delivered from, from all of this darkness and fear and superstition that you live in. And suddenly, things began to happen wherever they preached that message. Women would be delivered from demonic possession. Men would be rescued from their fears and their superstition. And suddenly there would, be, there would be joy. There would be a confidence. There would be a purpose. And the 
the pagan tribes people would, would look and they would say, what just happened? What, what did that? What caused that dark man to suddenly know such joy? And as they thought about that and talked about that and debated that, they came to an interesting conclusion. They said, you know, that had to be God's spell. That had to be the spell of God changing that man, that woman, that boy, that girl. That's the only thing we can explain what just happened. And from God's spell we get God's spell. That's where it came from. God's spell. The book of Acts shows us that, that wave that moves through the, the cities of the empire, even Mars Hill in Athens. All these images of gods, they were all named, a multitude of them. And Paul's visiting there, and he sees all these gods, and he stands up and says, hey guys, I know you're very religious. You're worshiping every god on the planet. And you even got this one altar, and you've given it a name. It's an altar to the unknown god. Well, I'm here to tell you about the unknown god, the one true and living god. And so the message began to move and be carried from city to city across the empire. And we read through the book of Acts, and you're reading through the sweep of the gospel through the known world of that day. But we need to look a bit more deeply than just say, isn't this wonderful? More deeply than just saying, an Irish pagan came to Christ. We need to think biblically, theologically. We need to say, is there another scripture somewhere? Are there other scriptures that would help us understand, explain what's happening right here in our community? I call it stringing the pearls, putting the pieces together so you get the whole beautiful picture. So look at, look at what's happening here. This is what I call the clash of the kingdoms. The clash of the kingdoms. We have the empire that rules the world, and then intruding into that empire, into that kingdom, comes another kingdom. One day the disciples said, Master, teach us to pray. Jesus said, okay. Then he gave them a series of strophes or stanzas. We usually call it the Lord's Prayer. Now, we don't ever see Jesus ever praying that prayer. Read John 17, and you'll see the prayer that Jesus prays. But he gives us a model, a pattern. When you pray, here's the topics, here's the themes, here's the points that would be appropriate as you come to God in prayer. One of those stanzas is very simple. It's the title of my sermon. And I'm using old-fashioned English. Thy kingdom Come. Thy kingdom come. Now, what did the disciples think? Well, they're Old Testament guys. And they think of Joshua, the army, the battles, the conquests. The land of promise becomes theirs. Thy kingdom come? 
That's what it must be. We're going to have another Joshua. We're going to have possession of the land again. We're going to be freed of the Romans. That's what it must be. Or maybe, how about David, the swashbuckler hero? Kingdom after kingdom fell before his army. He extended his kingdom to the Euphrates. That must be what it is. Yeah, we're going to have the greatest military in the world again. What about Solomon? Wow. He built on top of his father's kingdom. His rule extended. Pomp and circumstance. Everyone was afraid of him, and everyone sought him. That's what thy kingdom come must mean. Is that what thy kingdom come means? That the British Isles would once again become the supreme sovereign of the whole world? The United States would unite the whole world? Come with me in the time machine and come back six centuries to the fifth century AD, to the sixth century AD. Two men, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, and Daniel, the great man of God. Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream. He doesn't understand the dream. And he calls in Daniel to interpret the dream. The dream is an image. Looks like a man, but a strange man. He's got a head of gold. He's got a chest of silver. He's got thighs of bronze. He's got feet of iron and clay. And then suddenly in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a, a stone cut out of the rock, get these words, without a human hand. Wow, what is that all about? A stone cut out of the rock without a human hand. Now, if it's without a human hand, whose hand is it? It's God's hand. Then the stone begins to roll. It begins to gather speed. It begins to gather power. And it slams into the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it smashes. It shatters into dust. Daniel, what is, what is that all about? Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are the greatest king of the greatest kingdom. After you, other kingdoms will come. They'll not be golden. They'll be silver, bronze, or clay and iron. And in the day of that kingdom with feet of clay, God is going to send His rock. He's going to establish His kingdom. It will be the greatest kingdom. And it will be a kingdom that will go far beyond the boundaries, even of your Babylonian empire. Now, that's what's happening in Acts. That's what's happening at the end of Romans with that long list of names. The stone carved without human hand, born of a virgin, has arrived. John says, it is God in the flesh, God inhabiting flesh, God who has dwelt among us. This is what is happening. And so, Jesus says, 
Pray. Thy kingdom come. You don't need a military army. But what you need is the power of the word of God's love and God's mercy. So this is the big arching question today that I have for you. Has his kingdom come in your life, in your heart, in your home, in your career? What do your neighbors see? What do your neighbors hear? Nice, clean, middle-class America? Nice, purposeful, climbing the ladder? The appropriate likes, desires, as they gave up at the end of the third period last night with Alabama securely ahead. Oh, and Georgia won also. Is that where my heart should be? That's the big question. And when you walk out that door today, know that Neil is challenging you to know the answer to that question. Paul is preaching in Rome. He's under house imprisonment. Probably two guards, that's all. But friends can come and visit him. They can eat with him. And we're given the description in Acts 28 of one day. And a massive crowd comes. And notice that, look, the author of Acts tells us that from a.m. to p.m., from morning to night, Paul preached and teached and interacted and argued and debated with everybody who came but notice what he was teaching them. He was trying to convince them about the way of God? No. The hope of God? No. He was trying to convince them about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And about Jesus being the king of kings the emperor that you need to know. And then he takes them to Moses. And from Moses, he walks them through all of the Bible, testifying, teaching, revealing, unveiling Jesus until he gets to the very end of the Older Testament. He says, you know, I, I don't know what your problem is. I don't know why you can't hear this. It's all about Jesus. Can't you see him? Wasn't he in the wilderness with the evil one? Didn't he do in the wilderness what Adam and Eve failed to do? It's all about Jesus. And Acts tells us that some were convinced, but some were not convinced. Thy kingdom come. Here's the first thing that tells you if that's true in your life. Are you persuaded? 
that Jesus is the Redeemer, that Jesus is the King of Kings, that the only thing that matters is that you are persuaded that He is the Redeemer King. You've got to wrestle with that. You've got to know that. Are you giving glory? At the end of 27 and Romans 16, he says, To the only wise God be glory. To the only wise God give glory. Is your life giving glory? Your vocabulary? Jesus and his mother and brothers were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, these Jewish weddings, they were not kind of these Western things, you know, we have a 20-minute church service, and then we have a two-hour dinner, then the deal's over. Well, these weddings went on for days. Something very embarrassing happened. The host was really embarrassed. They ran out of wine. Now, I don't know whether these were really boozers or whether he just underestimated how many were coming, but... Mary comes to Jesus and says, can you help? The wine's all gone. And Jesus said, well, see the water pots? Start pouring. This is the best wine we've ever drunk. You should have served this first. And John says in his gospel, this is the first sign. This was the first sign. Now, you see, I just said that. It went in one ear and out the other ear. It didn't stick with you. But these are Older Testament folks. This was a buzzword. Sign. Oh, wow. He rescued them. He delivered them from Egypt by signs and wonders. And John says, this is only the first one. There's a bunch more to follow in this gospel. Read on. Signs that demonstrate, that reveal, that declare the God who rescued us centuries ago has returned to rescue us once again. This is the first sign where he makes manifest his doxa. Wow. Come on, Israel. I've rescued you. I've delivered you. Come out in the wilderness. Come on, Moses. Come up the mountain. I want you to see my Doxa. Now go back down and get those elders. What a motley bunch they are. We've got to get them straightened up. Bring them up here to me. Let them feast in my presence. And let them see my glory. And they saw his glory. And Moses writes, and they did not die. Wow. The first of his signs Revealed his glory. John says, we have, we have seen him. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now Paul says, he's revealed his glory. He wants you, like Moses with a shining face, 
to show his glory, to give him glory. And right now, the video of the last week should be running through your brain. Are we saying glory? You know, you Georgia fans, when Georgia finally got hold of that game yesterday, and they panned the crowd, they were all sitting like quiet Presbyterians. Right? No way. They were jumping out of their seats. They were screaming and yelling. They were applauding. They were high-fiving. They were giving glory to their human heroes. Are your neighbors seeing that? Are they hearing that? Are you persuaded? Are you giving glory? Are you growing and going? G and G. Are you growing and going? In these verses in Romans 16, there's two bookends. To him who is able to strengthen you. To the only wise God. Those are the bookends. In between the bookends, there are three kata. In the English, it's according. Three kata phrases that Paul gives the Romans if they are to demonstrate the life of God in their life. The first one is according to my gospel. My. It's mine. It's mine. It's been given to me. I'm an apostle. He's met with me in the wilderness. He's deposited his truth in my, my mind and my heart. I've even seen Jesus. This is my gospel. The word gospel is a compound word in the Greek. It's euangelion. Ou. This is the word that the charismatics know all about. Presbyterians know nothing about this word. It means enthusiasm. Overflowing joy. We're God's frozen chosen. Come on, melt a little bit. You'll feel good. The word euangelion, there's been a war. The army's gone out. They've fought. They've conquered. And now they send a member back to tell their people how they did. He's called the euangelio. He's the one who heralds victory. My gospel. Paul says, I'm heralding the victory. He said it's, the, it's according to the revelation of the mystery, and that one's interesting. It's the revelation of the mystery that has been made manifest through the graphe, the words, the scriptures of the prophets. Now, what, what's that mystery? Paul says, I don't know what's wrong with you people. There ain't no mystery here. You just go to the writings, to the graphe, and they tell you what the mystery is. The mystery is that finally the seed has come. The warrior king has come. He's gone into the wilderness. He's fought. He's wrestled with the evil one. 
And unlike Adam and Eve, he did not yield to temptation. He was victorious. How did he gain the victory? What did he do? Every time. Matthew is very, very anxious that you catch this. He responded to the temptation with a quotation from the graphe, Scripture, every time. Every time. He's given the victory over darkness. And he's given victory through his Son in the flesh. You read your Bible? I grew up without a Bible. There was no Bible in my house. I even came to Christ without a Bible. And one day one of my friends said, Neil, you reading your Bible? I said, well, actually, I don't have one. He said, let me get you one. He gave me a Bible. He said, Neil, read it. I keep a track record of my scripture reading. I read my Bible wall to wall, Genesis to Revelation, on average, every 10 months. I highlight what grabs me. And when I'm done, I take that Bible and I go to a church with pews and I leave it there, hoping somebody else will pick it up. Then I get another Bible. I buy cheap ones with large print these days. And when I've highlighted that day's reading, then I pray through those highlights. Why? I want to understand the revelation, the manifestation of Jesus through the graphic. And I want to know it better and better. Because when I do, I grow in Him. Then the third one, he says, it's according to the command of the eternal God. I don't like the, the English in my translation. It puts the Greek in the wrong place. Literally, it says, this is the command of the eternal God who through the obedience of faith makes known these things to panta ethne, all of the peoples. The word for command there does not let you or me off the hook. It means command. These are not the ten suggestions. It's the command. And it's not just the command of Paul. It's the command of the eternal God. And we're to respond to that eternal command through the obedience of faith. In other words, we're to be faithfully obedient to the command our eternal God gives us. What is it? To take 
the words of the mystery revealed to Panta Ethne, to all of the nations. How are you doing? I'll bet a dime to a dollar. I'll bet a penny to a dollar. You are growing. You all got small groups. You got a pastor who's a wonderful teacher of God's Word. He's very faithful. He learned some of it from me. Only some. I'm confident you're growing. But see, that's only sitting on the bike. He wants more than sitting on the bike. He wants growing and going. Are you going? I'm excited that in your first year, you've already sent out your first mission team. That is so exciting. That is so wonderful. But how many went? Anybody know how, what the, how, how many went on the team? Somebody shout out and tell me. Ten. Thank you. Did you go? Good man. He's growing and going. <clears throat> Maybe your wife wants you to go a little further. So ten. But your attendance is, after one year, already grown to 140. So if we give God a tithe of our attendance, there should have been 14 on the team. Now, I, I visit a lot of churches, and frankly, you're far ahead of a lot of them. But you need to keep on going. You know, you got neighbors. You probably are living in darkness. They may be dear people. But they might be like me. I live beside believers, committed believers. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, Thursday night permitting. And yet, I was unclean. They didn't want to mingle with me. They might get dirty. And they probably would have. And they weren't ready to, to welcome me and talk to me and love me until they discovered somebody else had led me to Christ. And then I was like their best friend. You've got neighbors. You've got folks that teach at school with you. You've got folks who work in the office with you. You don't have to go to Honduras. You just got to go six steps across the office floor. Thy kingdom come. Has it come? Is it coming? One day your friend calls you. <clears throat> And he says, uh, I need to come talk to you. Sure. No, I need to come talk to you. Like right now? Well, how about tonight? 7 p.m. Okay. And so he comes. With his wife. 
Now, this was not in the deal. And you're already concerned. And so you take him into the, the formal living room and you sit down. And the wife sits with her back very straight, looking very stoic. And the guy is hunched over and he's wringing his hands and he's looking at his feet. And this goes on for minutes. It feels like hours. And suddenly he looks up and he says, I need you to help me know God's love. I need you to help me show God's love because I'm living a gay lifestyle. And I've told my wife, I want to stop. I want you to help me know God's love so that I may love him and love my wife as I should. That was a long conversation you had. And he began his journey back with his wife. But he wasn't done yet. You see, I have a partner. I want my partner to know God's love. I want you to go tell him about God's love. And then he fumbles in his pocket. And he brings out this fumbled up piece of paper. So that's his name. That's his cell phone number. Would you please call him? It took you several days to pluck up the courage to make that phone call, but you did. You said, I'm a friend of your partner. He's given his life to Jesus. He wants you to know about God's love. Here's my name. Here's my phone number. But three days, three days later, he, he did respond. He didn't apologize for his French, but it was full of it. And he told you where to go and how soon to go. And don't ever contact me again. And then you did something very courageous. You called him back. You got his voicemail. You said, I'm sorry. I can't promise to never contact you again because for some reason, God has laid you on my heart to tell you about God's love. Here comes another one of those French voicemails. And he really dumps on you. And you keep doing that. You keep calling him. But every six weeks, short message. God loves you. I want to tell you why. So finally, one day, about six months after the first phone call, you get a voicemail. It's him. I need to talk. Really quickly, really soon. This coffee shop in Norcross, this day, this time. I'll be wearing a green sweater. And so you go. So you begin to ask a few questions. He begins to open up. And he begins to talk. He begins to share. He goes on for about 50 minutes. You've never heard anything so dark. You've never seen a man who's 
who began experiencing abuse at age eight. One of the men who abused him was one of his uncles. The boy grew up to be a young man who believed his only purpose in life was to satisfy the pleasures of other men. Very deep, very dark, very lonely. And finally, as he pauses to take a breath, you say, do you want to continue living in that awful, dark place? He said, no, I don't. Do you want to, to receive the new life that Jesus gives? Yes, I do, but I don't know how. You ever seen a grown man cry? Two men at an outside table of an Orcross coffee shop. Heads bowed, tears washing their face as one leads the other in prayer to commit his life to Jesus. That's called growing and going. That's called the obedience of faith. That's called enjoying reaping the harvest with God. Has his kingdom come? If it has, you ought to be seeing some of that. And until you see that, you have not experienced the fullness of Jesus living in you. Let's pray. Father, we we're proud to be Presbyterian. We're the smartest bunch of all. And we've got our act together. We, we've grown growing to a perfection. But Father, we are so slow to go. Father, would you would you bring your kingdom? Would you come in kingdom power more than we've ever felt, known, experienced before? Would folks see the signs and wonders of the amazing work of grace in our hearts, in our life? For Jesus' sake, Father. Amen.